This afternoon, we're looking forward to a lesson to continue what we have been going through now for several years, of course, in our Book of the Month Club. And we have gone, made our way entirely through the Old Testament. We've used this slide a lot, not every single time, but as sort of an introduction to remind us um, of the books of the Bible on the shelf here, broken down into some of the, the sections. We didn't quite go through them in that way as we sometimes do the law, the history, poetry, and the major and minor prophets. Um, but we've worked through every book of the Old Testament and even had a couple of Sundays, uh, Sunday afternoons on the intertestamental period kind of challenging ourselves to think about the entire Bible and the way that it all fits together and even that page in the middle or a couple of pages that are blank uh, where there are some writings that take place. We talked about that, some non-inspired writings and some things that can encourage us as we think about the division and the break that takes place there. Uh, but then we do turn the page over to uh, the New Testament. I know I've told you before that I'd kind of borrowed this idea uh, from Chad Dollahite, and he had worked his way through the entire Bible. And so this morning, the lesson on the transfiguration, uh, I thought, well, you know, I'd been wanting to do one on that, and I'll, I'll look at Matthew's account. And then in the afternoon, we'll study Matthew because we're ready for the New Testament. And as I was looking back over some of the things he had shared with me before he got to Matthew, he actually covered uh, the all four what we sometimes call the harmony of the Gospels. And I thought, well, that's, that's kind of interesting. And I think that would be something good to kind of set the stage before we move on to these first four books. And I've asked you before, and I want you to consider again, it's extremely, extremely difficult because of the way that most of us were raised, maybe either attending services somewhere faithfully or maybe not, maybe off and on with a grandparent or your parents or something like that. It's fine either way it goes, but for most of us, we've known the Bible for such a long time that it's hard for us to envision what if, what if you had never opened your Bible and you just opened a Bible to the New Testament? And, and what if you said, well, there seems to be this major division, it's on the table of contents, and you just opened up to the New Testament, because new sounds better than old, right? Let's open up to the New and you started reading at Matthew, what would you think? Again, it's hard for us to, to be unbiased and to ask that, but if a person simply opened their Bible and they read Matthew, and then they finished Matthew and turned over to Mark, and they started saying, well, this all sounds very familiar. I think I've read this before. And, and maybe a person keeps going, but then they come to Luke and they say, well, now I know I've heard this before, and I think I've heard it twice before. You know, what would a person do with that? Why are there four accounts that cover so much of the same material. And the question is in the title of our lesson in the bulletin, if you have one, but the word we use sometimes is harmony. Are they harmonious? Do they go together? Or do they conflict? This is a question that a person might have if they were to look at these things. I wanted to share with you that a lot of what I'm going to look at this afternoon is from the Christian Courier website. I uh, talk about that a lot, reference Wayne Jackson's material. Uh, up in the corner, it's circled there is just their logo and, and the website. But ChristianCourier.com, this is just the front page. I just took a screenshot of that. On the left-hand side, there's about five little thumbnail photos. Those are all of Wayne Jackson himself because of uh, the fact that a lot of his lessons were recorded or certainly as that technology became available. And you can go to their website and find uh, some of those. And then there's all kinds of questions and articles that are on there. But, but he wrote one entitled Examining the Four Gospels. And so we want to kind of take a look at that and use some of his material or most of his material as the basis uh, of our lesson this afternoon. It is a lot. 
So as uh, usual, I will do my best to not talk too fast, but to not go too long. And that's sometimes a tough balance to strike. So let's begin. And the first thing we want to notice as we begin is there is one gospel. Now somebody says, well, preacher, I think you're quibbling a little bit. Why are we arguing about the fact whether or not there's four or one? Maybe just a little bit, but I, most of us understand even when we say there are four Gospels, what we're saying is there are four Gospels. What we're meaning or thinking is, is that there is just one Gospel. There's also the ways that we talk about it. Uh, some people will say, and I've even done this sometimes, just sort of inadvertently or just out of habit, but I'll say, well, it's the Gospel according to Matthew. Yes and no, it's not Matthew's thoughts. Matthew didn't say, well, you know what? I think I'm just going to sit down and just say whatever I think. Here's what I think happened. But, of course, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Some people will say, well, this is Matthew's account. Matthew's account of the one gospel, right? The gospel of Jesus. That's difficult to do. It's sometimes hard to kind of say that. And most of the time when any of us say the four gospels, we know what we mean. If I say, well, it's the gospel according to John, you know what I mean. But we do need to understand, of course, that there are not four, but there is one, one story. There is one gospel of Jesus Christ. The question that sometimes comes up is, are there contradictions? Are there contradictions? And by that, somebody might say, well, there's similarities, and that should maybe also say on the second line there, differences. Right? Sometimes somebody says, well, they're, they're too similar. And you know what that is? That's a problem. And then somebody says, well, you know what? They're different. You know what that is? That's a problem. And you say, well, wait a minute. How are we going to make anybody happy? Not that it's our job, of course. But how are we going to make anybody happy when they talk about these so-called contradictions when they're, if they're similar or too similar, they have a problem? And if they're too different, they have a problem. One of the ideas that we could use to try to lay this out for us in our parlance today, what if we went up the road here, of course, to Sequoia Road at Dayton Pike, and there was a car accident? And we can just, for argument's sake, say that, that Michael was there, and Frank was there, and Jerry was there, and I was there, and, and there's a car accident, and all four of us witnessed this car accident. The police show up. I think they're going to have a problem if we all four tell the exact same thing, right? Even down to the exact same second and the exact same moment in the exact same way. You take that from a car accident and you turn it into some kind of crime and the police are going to say, well, wait a minute. It seems like you guys talked and got all your stories together before you really realized, you know, before you said anything. You guys are got every single thing the same. But, of course, if you talk to four different witnesses of a car accident, you're probably going to get some things that maybe are a little different. And you begin to see the problem here that some people, the supposed problem that some people come up with that really doesn't make sense. If you've got four different accounts of the same thing, of course they're going to be similar, right? Of course they're going to be close together. They may not be moment for moment exact, but they're going to be similar. But also there's going to be some differences. And these people who say, well, one's a problem and the other's a problem, well, they're just not being honest, right? They're not contradictions. If they're telling the same gospel, they're going to be similar. But maybe because it's four different people, they're going to be a little different. And we just need to understand that when we kind of have this discussion about the gospel and these four accounts of the gospel. 
Let me ask you to turn in your Bible, first of all, to sort of set the stage to Luke chapter 23 and verse 38. What we're going to do, if you have the bulletin, is go through each of the gospel, the gospel accounts very quickly and just touch on some, I think they're really, really interesting. I'm just going to tell you now, I hope that you'll find some interest in parts of this lesson because when you really break down the books, they're, they're, they're different than when you just sit and read them. And that's fine and well and good, and you can do that. A person can and should just read. But when you really kind of look at maybe some background and some stylistic things, there's some interesting points that are brought out. When we think about these four Gospels, Luke chapter 23 and verse 38 says, And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. When Jesus was crucified, this superscription, if you will, was placed above his head, proclaiming that this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. What's interesting, and again, if you really have to think about the time, you may dig in a little deeper, these are the three dominant cultures of that time frame. Even as we think about the intertestamental period, we talked about the Medo-Persians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans and all these different people. But these three languages represented the, represented the three dominant cultures of this part of the world when the New Testament was written. All three of these. And so what we're going to see this afternoon is that it is not without significance. It is not without significance that there is a gospel record sort of for each one of these. You say, well, wait a minute, there's four. Well, we'll get there in just a moment. Let's begin by thinking about Matthew. The gospel according of Matt to Matthew or the gospel of Jesus according to Matthew or again, all these different ways that we're trying to say this. But the, the, book, the book of this, uh, this particular book does not bear his name. You know, he doesn't sign it and say, well, this is Matthew. But as you look at early Christian tradition and in history, it's attributed to Matthew, and he was the inspired author of this first gospel account. One interesting thing, of course, about Matthew is the financial discussions that are had. We know that Matthew was a tax collector, right? He was a Jew who was a tax collector, and he became an apostle. And so in this book, there are a lot of discussions around finances. There are more references. Here's the first of many. I didn't put, I won't have each one on the screen. Here's the first of these interesting points. There are more references to money in this account than in the other three gospel records. Again, you think about, well, how often was money mentioned? I don't remember exactly. There's the coin that was in the fish's mouth. There's talk about paying taxes and all these things. There's more financial discussion from the tax collector than there is in the other three gospel records. And, of course, this is kind of um, important because when Jesus selected Matthew, we know that tax collectors were a despised group of people, right? They, people looked down on them. They hated them. And so this is important to Matthew being one of the ones who's going to record these things. There is, some people say, a twofold purpose to Matthew. And the gospel, of, 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 a gospel account of Matthew is twofold. First, it's an apologetic. So what we said a moment ago is that Matthew was written with the Jews in mind. And so it's an apologetic for the Jews. It's a defense of the idea that Jesus is the Messiah 
of the Old Testament. What's their problem? They keep looking for the Messiah. Matthew's saying, this is the Messiah. That, and we know this because he uses 55, or excuse me, that's a typo there from my notes, 50, apologize for that, 50 direct quotations from the Old Testament and some 75 different allusions to Old Testament events. This would be serious evidence for the Hebrew people. Matthew seems to be saying it on every page, almost every other verse it would seem. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. If he were writing for another group of people, he could have used all kinds of things. And we're going to get there in a minute with Mark and Luke and even John. But if he's writing with the Jews in mind, this would help them understand as in an apologetic kind of discourse or writing that Jesus was the Messiah. And that's exactly what Matthew is trying to point out here. And it would also be important that Matthew references many times, about 35 times, to the kingdom. What were they thinking about? They're thinking about David and they're thinking about the kingdom. Well, Matthew makes reference to the kingdom some 35 different times. It was not only an apologetic. Number two, it was meant to be an encouragement to Jewish Christians. They, what had they done after Jesus has died, right? And Matthew's going to write, what had they done? They had crucified the Son of God. But this is encouragement that while they had crucified the Messiah, there was still hope for the seed of Abraham. You know, while they were going to have to pay a terrible price for their rebellion, of course, in the destruction of Jerusalem, they could be a part of the gospel system. Here's the encouragement. Yes, you crucified the Messiah, but it's not over. It's not over. Matthew's main thrust is to, it's Jewish. It's decidedly Jewish. And he is aware of the fact that the Gentiles have a place in the gospel system But he's going to talk about this Hebrew way of thinking many times. And, of course, Matthew's account of the Great Commission is universal, right? We referenced that this morning. Uh, Go and make disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples. So Matthew does think about the fact that the Gentiles are a part of this universal scope. But he also thinks a lot about the Jews. Number two here, then, is, of course, Mark. Mark was the son of a woman named Mary. Mark was the cousin of the evangelist Barnabas, and he seems to have a close relationship with Peter. And there is a lot of evidence, and we won't spend a lot of time this afternoon really breaking that down, but a lot of evidence that he wrote his gospel account with the influence maybe of Peter as part of that. The gospel of Mark, excuse me, the gospel of Mark is remarkably different from that of Matthew. And we see that Mark is really towards a non-Jewish audience. And as we said just a moment ago, it is mainly for the Roman kind of audience. How do we know that? Well, he has to do a lot of explaining. Opening your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. I'll try to give you a few of these references as we have them. We can notice together very quickly. Mark chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. You remember this, right, because it's the idea of defilement coming from within, that there are these Pharisees who talk about the disciples eating with unwashed hands and the tradition of the elders. Why is it that Mark needs to explain that? 
Well, maybe because these Romans are not going to understand in the same way these Hebrew traditions. Also in Mark chapter 11 and verse number 13. Mark 11 and verse 13. He has to explain sort of the, the Palestine conditions. Uh, the fig tree is withered here after Jesus has been through the triumphal entry. It says, And seen from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he could find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Seems to be kind of just very small and not very important until you start thinking about him trying to explain some of these things to the non-Jews. Also, there are some what we might call Latinisms. Latinisms. Look in Mark chapter 12 and verse 42. The widow's two mites, right? You're familiar with this particular story. The one poor widow who came and threw in two mites, which make... I don't know what your version says there. You may have a, I have the New King James. You may have something different in front of you, but something like a quadrant. The Latinisms within this book make it seem like that Mark is writing for Roman readers. These two mites, or lepta, are converted into a Roman farthing, or a quadrant here. A, a particular word is used maybe based upon the particular audience. And so this explains why Mark does not appeal to the Old Testament. Remember that we said Matthew was some 50, or he might even say you add in 75 on top of that, over 100. Mark just references the Old Testament 19 times. And why, why would these Romans, if he's kind of writing in a general way for this non-Jewish audience, why would they care? So while Matthew emphasized the words of Jesus as well, where's the Sermon on the Mount that we call it, the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's Matthew, right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew records a lot of the words of Jesus, but Mark only records one major sermon. It's found in Mark chapter 13, verses 3 through 37. That's the only major sermon that Mark records for us. And, of course, Mark is a strong advocate that Jesus is the Son of God. And so when we think about his writings, notice here that approximately 40% of the gospel account written by Mark is dedicated to Jesus' final journey. Mark is the shortest gospel. Mark is the shortest gospel, and almost 40% of it is devoted to the Lord's final journey to Jerusalem and the events that culminate with his death. Again, we're going to talk about John in just a minute. John's a little interesting as well. But you wouldn't think that, right? You see some of the same parables. You see some of the same writings. And you kind of think, well, these are very, very similar. Well, Mark, being the shortest, pays a lot of attention towards the end. All right, Luke. The gospel account of Luke. Luke is the one Gentile writer of the Bible. He's the one non-Jew. But... If you know your history on Luke, how much of the New Testament did Luke write? Almost a quarter. Almost 25% of the New Testament is written, written by Luke because of the length of Luke and then Acts, and the length of Acts. So he's very important. We know that Luke was a trained physician. That's important. He was with Paul on Paul's missionary journeys, especially the second one, because we see there that Luke says we several times. They're traveling together. He is with uh, Paul on those missionary journeys. As with the Gospel of Mark, it is clear that Luke is writing to non-Jews. 
And here's a couple of reasons why we might say that. Turn first of all to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 and verse 31. Luke 4, 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. So he's explaining some things in certain settings. Capernaum is a city of Galilee. Look over at Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 and verse 26. He says here that then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. Again, kind of like a description. And then at the very end, Luke chapter 24 and verse number 13, he's talking about the road to Emmaus. I've preached on this before a couple of times. I think I used the lesson here that I had done on these two men who were on the road to Emmaus. But Luke 24 verse 13, he says what? Emmaus is seven miles from Jerusalem. Here's the deal. The Jews, they would have known all that. They would have known exactly how far Emmaus was from Jerusalem. They would have known exactly where these other cities were. But Luke seems to be taking the time to address it and to explain these certain settings. Also, the Greeks were preoccupied with man, right? What is the whole of man? What is the purpose of man? They think a lot about man. We think about uh, Aristotle or some of these great thinkers, right? They're talking about man, what it makes up a man. So it's not without purpose then that it seems like Luke is focusing in on Jesus as the perfect example of humanity. Well, why do we say that? Notice some of the things that he emphasizes. He gives the most complete record of the Savior's birth and childhood, Luke chapters 1 and 2. Remember, that's the account where it goes all the way to where he is left behind, right, by his family. Uh, excuse me, not, not in Luke there, but, um, well, yes, while, while he's left behind, beginning in verse number 41. Sorry about that. Uh, but it goes not into his genealogy as much, but into his birth, even to the point that he was left behind when he was 12 years old, and even Luke 2.52, that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, right? He gives the most complete record as he thinks about the human aspects of Jesus. Number two, he also is the one, who, of course, who talks about Jesus weeping. And he talks about Jesus sweating. These things, he weeps over Jerusalem in Luke 19. He sweats the great drops of blood in Luke 22. We usually talk about that being a physician's comment. It is, but what else is it? It's a human comment. The Greeks are worried about man and the whole of man. Jesus was man. And even Luke gives prominence to the prayers of Jesus. Of the 15 prayers that Jesus, of Jesus that are recorded in the gospel accounts, 11, 11 of the 15 prayers are found in Luke's narrative. What's he recording? A man who is praying. These things help emphasize the humanity of Jesus. And as these Greeks are thinking about these things, and on one side they're hearing Luke and they're thinking about Jesus, and on the other side they've got these great deep thinkers in these places who are assembled together in teaching and learning. Luke is sharing in that as well. And of course, he gives first-rate, I mean just first-rate testimony to the genuineness of Jesus' miracles, right? He's a scientist, he's a doctor, and so he mentions 20 of Jesus' supernatural miracles, and six of those, six of the 20 that he mentions are only in Luke. 
a doctor writing these things. He treats them as history. He, treat, he treats them as reality. It's not some dream. It's not some grand idea that's made up. He mentions 20 of the miracles, and he treats them as a historical reality. Of course, what a better person to think about the virgin birth than a, a doctor, right? A doctor to talk about and give evidence for Jesus' virgin birth. It must have been something for a doctor to sit and to consider that. Have you ever been to a doctor, who was, a medical doctor who was maybe a member of the Lord's Church? Or you ever talked to someone who is a doctor who's a member of the Lord's Church, right? They have a different perspective on things sometimes. And not even just the text and the miracles and those kinds of things, but just in general. The thoughts about the human body. How it works so perfectly. It means something different when someone is thinking about it with these thoughts in mind. All right, let's finish up then here with John. John, of course, is the son of Zebedee. He's the brother of James. He was the author of the fourth account. And if we've already mentioned the Hebrews, the Romans, and the Greeks, that was the three inscriptions, right? Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Hebrew, Roman, and Greek. Then what would John be? We might say John was written as a multicultural, to a multicultural audience. The, uh, this record, this account is in a class by itself. It sort, of, uh, it sort of reaches all ethnic groups, all different kinds of people. And really when it comes to John, and we think about John's writing, we might say that John was offering evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus had a divine nature. And so John is very selective in his writing. I use this in my, uh, the college young adult slash class this morning here. Uh, kind of talked about this a little bit. But John has a couple of interesting things real quickly here to notice when we think about him trying to point out that Jesus is the Son of God. We know from John's account that Jesus's ministry seemed to last for three to three and a half years. We know that because there are four different places where John mentions the Passover. He mentions Passover, 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 Passover. So if we're counting Passovers, then Jesus' ministry must have lasted about three and a half years. Yet of all the three and a half years, John only spends time on 30 days. 30 days. That's his focus. He deals with only slightly more than 30 days of that entire three and a half years. Do you remember as well that John is the one that ends his account by saying that I suppose all the books in the world couldn't contain? And you know, that's always frustrated me, right? I think, man, I love behind the scenes stuff, right? I love, you know, whether it's athletes or, you know, actors or politicians or whatever, when they let a camera in and it kind of follows them around, I love, love that behind the scenes stuff. You see how they live and, you know, how their day goes and all this. I would have loved, I would love to be able to know in three and a half years all the things that Jesus did, you know? How often was he hungry? How often did he want to stop and take a break? How often would he, you know, might have been frustrated with something? All these things that make up our days, they just seem so simple, we forget them and move on. Three and a half years, John focuses on 30 days. <clears throat> but also, John is 21 chapters long. And about 36% of the material involves only 24 hours or about a 24-hour period. 
Well, what would that be? Well, of course, that would be the end of Jesus' life, right? But almost 40% of the gospel account really focuses in on the end of his life in the last 24 hours and certainly these 30 days. Think about Matthew. How does Matthew begin? Matthew begins with a genealogy, right? Think about Luke. How does Luke begin? Luke begins with the virgin birth, right? How does John begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you keep going down through John chapter 1, it's not too long, and we're to John the baptizer, and we're already into the ministry, and we hit the ground running. Because John doesn't spend a lot of time on those other things, and he focuses instead on all of this that makes up the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. And here's what I find really interesting. John may have been one of the people that was the closest to the Lord, right? We might put Peter up there first, maybe. But who was at the Mount of Transfiguration this morning? Peter, James, and John. Who is John? What do we say about John? He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. John may have been the closest person in the world to Jesus, in a sense. Spent the most time with him. Yet John is the most selective in what he chooses, the example I used in class this morning was if Hannah were there and Emma was in the class this morning, Emma was there, and I died today. And you said for Hannah and Emma to both write down what they knew about me and my life. It's obvious that Hannah could fill pages of our life together and what she knows about me and, and all these things. And Emma would say a few things. I knew him. I knew he you know, liked this or I knew he did that, but that's not that much. John is in that category of knowing maybe the most, yet he's the most selective because he makes the arguments for the deity of Christ. And, of course, he references miracles and, and all these other things as well. He talks about Jesus' power over water, water into wine. talks about his power over gravity as he walks on the water. All of these different things show that Jesus truly was the Son of God. All right, one more thing that I want us to make mention of. This is the last thing. The lesson will be yours. You're going to see two passages on the screen here, and I want you to, to look at them, maybe open them up together if you can. When we talk about the similarities and the contradictions that we already mentioned, one thing that people will argue is that the gospel accounts must clash. They must have problems. You know, they say different things. And, hey, here's one more for you, by the way. I didn't mention this this morning. In Matthew chapter 17, it says that after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the mount. Mark chapter 9, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the mount. Luke says after about eight days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the mount. Well, there's a problem here, isn't it? Is it six days? Is it eight days or what? Well, you could do the study and dig a little deeper Eight is about six, you know, is kind of one of the simplest explanations there. But people want to point out these supposed contradictions. Look at John chapter 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. We're looking at the empty tomb, right? Now you go over to Mark, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. One of the supposed contradictions is found in these two accounts here. 
where it seems that there are two problems. Number one, the amount of people. We read in John that John says that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. But number two, Mark, Mark says that Mary Magdalene and other women came to the tomb. So which is it? Well, first of all, John doesn't say that only Mary came, Mary Magdalene. If John said only Mary Magdalene was standing there and the, and the stone was rolled away, we may have a problem. But he simply mentions only Mary Magdalene. Now, if you still have your Bible or you can go back and forth, look at John chapter 20 and verse number 2. You see, we quit reading. Then she ran, that's Mary Magdalene, and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and what? And we do not know where they have laid him. It may be that John just only records Mary Magdalene. Mark records the others for clarification. But yet when she says to Peter, we, there must have been more women there than just Mary Magdalene, even though that's the only one that's mentioned by John there. Number two, the second thing is the time of day. That's the second problem. I don't even know if you caught it when we were looking at it a moment ago. But John says that while it was still dark, and yet Mark says very early in the morning they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So which was it? Was it dark or was it not dark? The thing about it is neither writer here ever uses the term that they arrived. In fact, the, the verb tense there is that they are coming. It's marking the progress of the journey. And so it would seem that John is describing the early part of the journey while it was dark and it's a longer trip and Mark simply records when they arrive and it's after this long journey and there's after sunrise. You see, even though there are alleged contradictions, we can say there is no discrepancy here and we can say so with conviction. In fact, the gospel accounts are quite harmonious and they continue to enjoy unprecedented popularity even as their critics continue to fade away and that's the way brother jackson ends the article right there there is no discrepancy there is no problem because as we think about four different people giving an account of something they're not going to be the exact same because if we open and we read the exact same thing four times somebody's going to say well you got a problem here they must have just copied from each other why is that in your bible if that's all they were doing was copying are they inspired or are they not or somebody says wait a minute Six days or about eight days or Mary Magdalene or Mary Magdalene, Mary and Salome. What, what is it? There's no discrepancies and we have nothing to fear. There is one gospel. And the study of the harmony of the gospels is a wonderful study. We have, I think, multiple copies of the fourfold gospel, as it's called, in our library, which will take you through and look at these and the way they're laid out. Um, we studied the parables not too long ago. That was a great study into how those things are laid out sometimes. And it really helps to think about the background. There's a lot of rich things that are found there that can interest us, including how much is written about certain things and that, all those things when we really dig into Scripture. But here's the thing. We cannot take it lightly. We cannot just stay on the surface. Even as we said last Sunday, you can't stay a baby. You've got to keep growing and maturing and really studying these things. I hope that's been of some interest to you, and we will pick up in the future then on the idea of the Matthew and kind of begin looking through some of the New Testament books. 
Uh, but the gospel is, it's amazing. When we think not just about the one gospel account, but also the life of Christ and also the entire Bible, it's encouraging. As we conclude this lesson this afternoon, we're about to sing a hymn of encouragement. As you think about these things, you may be thinking about God and your relationship with him, thinking about how wonderful and great and magnificent he is and how we sometimes fall short and miss the mark. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we sing to encourage you. If you're here, brother or sister, and you are, but you realize you've wandered away from the great God of heaven who has given us such wonderful things, you can come back to him and be made right, even as we stand together and even as we sing.